Listen to the lyrics of Ian Anderson's song, Looking for Eden. As I drove down the road to look for Eden, saw two young girls but left them standing there. They were too late to get home on the underground and probably too drunk, too drunk to care. Can anyone tell me the way to Eden? I'll ask them there, have they a job for me? I'm not a fussy man. I can weed and hoe. I'll be her Adam. She can be my Eve. And where on earth are all those songs of Eden, the fairy tales, the shepherds and wise men, just one old dozer lurching down Oxford Street to spend his Christmas lying in the rain? Don't anybody know the way to Eden? I'm tired of living my life in free fall. They say it's somewhere out on the edge of town. Perhaps it isn't really there at all. This song encapsulates the desire of the world to find a place like Eden, a place that is utopic, a place where their dreams can be fulfilled, a place where their daily needs are met, and where they are free from troubles, a place that is perfect, a place where they can find purpose in life. It seems that while everyone is looking for an Eden today, as they look around the world, this Edenic place is nowhere to be found. As the last song line states, perhaps it isn't really there at all. What hopelessness! Was there really a place called Eden? Is there a place like that today? Can we find Eden if we look for it today? Let's take a look at biblical Eden according to Genesis chapter 2 to see what made the Garden of Eden so special as we continue our sermon series titled, When Giants Walk the Earth, studying Genesis chapters 1 to 11 and showing that the events recorded in those chapters are facts and not fiction. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the first book in the Bible, Genesis, as we study Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25 looking at this place called Eden that God created and seeing what biblical principles we can learn for our lives today. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25. I read now Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. In verses 4 to 6, we have a flashback of sorts to the description of the world before the creation of man on day 6. This is not a continuation of God's creative work in chapter 1, but elaborates on what specifically happened on day 6 when God created mankind. In verse 5, it is noted that in the times before the great flood, as described in chapter 7, it did not rain, but that a water mist provided the needed moisture for the world. How this worked, we are not told, and we really don't know. Now, some have suggested that during this pre-flood times, the earth was surrounded with some sort of water canopy, but this is only a theory that cannot be proven through the biblical text. Look at verse 7 with me. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Here the Bible tells us that God created and gave life to man using two things. The first is the dust of the ground, and the second is through his breath. Knowing that we are created from the dust of the ground is a reminder that we should keep humble due to our lowly origins. Even though we were created in the image of God, that doesn't make us gods or demigods, but creatures whose physical bodies were created from common earthly elements. While the Bible isn't trying to make a scientific assertion here, 
God, who inspired the Scriptures, knows what He's talking about. Dust is made up primarily of the elements carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, silicon, phosphorus, and some other minor minerals. And modern science tells us likewise that the physical body we have is primarily made up of 20 different elements. Deconstructing an 80-kilogram human into atomic elements, you get the following amounts, 52 kilograms of oxygen, 14.4 kilograms of carbon, 8 kilograms of hydrogen, 2.4 kilograms of nitrogen, 1.12 kilograms of calcium, 880 grams of phosphorus, and so on. And of those elements, the most important structural element is carbon. Now, what's so special about carbon is that it can form double bonds which share more than one electron with another atom. This is why humans are known as carbon-based life forms. Actually, one of the reasons I'm not a medical doctor today was when I took organic chemistry in college, all we did was draw carbon chains, and I got bored and changed courses. Anyway, this is why pastors often say at burials something similar to these words. We therefore commit His body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who shall change the body of our humiliation and fashion it anew in the likeness of His own body of glory, according to the working of His mighty power, wherewith He is even able to subdue all things unto Himself. These words are taken from this verse and also from Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, where it says, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return." And also in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 20, it says these words, All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to dust. The emphasis in the Scriptures is that the human body is from the dust of the ground, and when our lives are over, it decays into the primary chemical elements of dust in the decomposition process. What a humbling thought that we are made from such lowly materials and that no one is greater than the other in terms of bodily value. We are all the same as carbon-based humans. That's why there should be no racism today. We are all of the same value. But the sad reality of our carbon-based composition allows us to look forward with greater anticipation to our resurrected bodies, which is not ravaged by sin and sin's effect, and will not decay nor return back to dust. For as 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verses 42 to 45 says these words, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. My friends, the aging process is a sad reality of the sinful world we live in. As much as we want, we can't keep the temporary beauty of our youth, whatever beauty products you use. The wear and tear of our bones and joints through the years show that we are in the process of decaying. Time marches on with every birthday we celebrate and there's nothing we can do to stop it. 
a truly depressing thought without the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ, which comes with it a resurrected body, not carbon-based, a body that never ages and is incorruptible because it is not made from the dust of the ground. Now, the other component of mankind's creation is the breath of life that comes from God. God is to breathe life into someone for them to live. Now, the great implication of this truth is that all of our lives are in the hands of God. God gives life, and He takes it away. Life isn't just through a biological process. God is very much involved. For example, just because sperm and egg meet doesn't mean a baby will be born. And when fertility specialists and doctors tell a couple that it would be hard for them to conceive, just like what our doctors told us, God can supernaturally intervene to bring life to the womb. Biological science can explain some of the processes of the miracle of birth, but it is God who wills life into being. You know, it's interesting if we look at the science at the atomic and subatomic levels. There are forces at work that cannot be explained by science. It is a mystery to them. For example, you and I know the atom is composed of three major particles, protons, neutrons, and electrons. And there are four forces, electromagnetic force, strong force, the weak force, and gravity that are responsible for the behavior of the particles and thus keep the atom together. The reigning theory of particle physics is called the standard model, of which matter, 4% of the universe, makes up one of the three categories of particles and is composed of quarks and leptons. But it's an incomplete model because it doesn't explain many important features of the known universe, such as gravity, dark matter, which makes up 27% of the universe, or dark energy, which makes up 68% of the universe. While we think that modern science has figured out so much, in actuality, we really don't know how everything works. There are still so many limitations of the theory of the standard model of particle physics. As Jim Lucas notes, in addition to all the known and predicted subatomic particles, the standard model includes the strong and weak forces and electromagnetism and explains how these forces act on particles of matter. However, the theory does not include gravity. Fitting the gravitational force into the framework of the model has stumped scientists for decades. Even with advances in science, we really don't have a clue how things at the atomic and subatomic levels really work. So the next time scientists who disregard the biblical account claim science has it all figured out, it simply is not true. They haven't even figured out how gravity works as it relates to particle physics even though Isaac Newton first proposed his law of universal gravitation all the way back in 1687, more than 330 years ago. If you would indulge me in a bit more science, there is a force called the strong force that is responsible for binding together the fundamental particles of matter to form larger particles and is the strongest force out of the four forces I mentioned earlier. The strong force was first proposed to explain why atomic nuclei didn't fly apart. It seemed that they would do so due to the repulsive electromagnetic force between the positively charged protons located in the nucleus. It was later found that the strong force not only holds nuclei together, but is also responsible for binding together the quarks that make up hadrons. This side effect is called the residual strong force or the nuclear force. 
and it's what holds atomic nuclei together in spite of the repulsive electromagnetic forces between the positively charged protons that acts to push them apart. All this to say is that according to science, at the atomic and subatomic level of all matter, they shouldn't exist at all. The positive charge of the protons should be pulling everything apart, but there is a force that science calls the strong force that is holding everything together and in the process giving life which science cannot fully explain. But look what Paul writes in the book of Colossians in describing the second person of the triune Godhead, Jesus Christ, God Himself. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by Him, referring to Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things, note this, hold together. The strong force that science is still trying to explain that holds all things together at the subatomic level is God Himself, the giver and the sustainer of life. Now, how God does it, we are not told. Whether through direct or indirect intervention, we do not know. But all I can say is that the Bible tells us that God is involved in His creation. He holds all things together. My friends, science doesn't disprove the biblical account. But instead, as more and more things are discovered in the world of science and medicine, it lines up perfectly with the truth of God's written Word. But more than science, knowing that God holds all life, and specifically our life, in His hands, is an important reminder for us to remain humble. The Lord gives life, and the Lord takes away life. It is His breath of life that man is even a living being. Both the truth that we are made from dust and need God for life is a vivid reminder that we should keep humble. And that's our first biblical principle, biblical principle number one. Humility should be a primary character trait, knowing that God holds our life in His hands. Humility should be a primary character trait, knowing that God holds our life in His hands. This should be our attitude that pervades our entire being, that the God of the universe, who is sovereign and omnipotent, would care to keep us alive regardless of how we treat Him because of His love and grace. What a humbling thought. So remember the next time you begin to get proud and begin to think that you're all that, that you're so good-looking, so athletic, so inspiring, so much better than others. Remember, you and I are made up of the same earthly material elements. We don't deserve to live, and we certainly don't deserve a future, incorruptible, resurrected body, but it is all ours because of Jesus Christ and His grace. We have nothing to boast about, so let's keep humble, my friends. In Eden, certainly the attitude of Adam was one of humility, knowing how he was created as he stood in awe and in worship of the mighty God, his Creator. And we can also have the same attitude of humility today as we cultivate the same attitude that God wanted Adam to have in the Garden of Eden. Look with me now at verses 8 and 9 of Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Bible tells us the Lord planted a garden in a place called Eden, 
and it was there that Adam resided. Notice that in this beautiful garden, fruit trees of every type were available for Adam to eat. As we noted last week, when Adam was created and came to life, already a buffet of foods was already waiting for him to enjoy as fruits and vegetation were created on day three and Adam was created on day six. This is how much God loved and cared for man and wanted to bless mankind. Verse 9 indicates that there was a tree called the tree of life. Now, we don't have much information about this tree other than what it is called. It may be that the fruits of this tree somehow allowed Adam and Eve to keep on living. And that's why in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, we're told that they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden to prevent them from having access to this tree and eating its fruits. All we can say is that God is the source of life. And He built for Adam and Eve a garden that was literally life-giving, a place of blessing for them. All that Adam and Eve needed were in the garden. There was nothing they needed that God did not provide for them. This is a great reminder for us today, my friends, that all we need can be found in the Lord. There's really nothing we need, not talking about our wants, there's really nothing we need that God has not provided for us or made available for us if only we realize this truth and enjoy His blessings. There was nothing Adam and Eve had to worry about. All was taken care of by God. And this is what is echoed by Jesus' words when He tells us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 27, that we can't add a single hour to our lives by worrying. There is a time for everything according to His will. So just enjoy life as God has provided for it. Of course, there was another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we'll talk more about when we get to verses 16 and 17, and in greater detail when we get to chapter 3 of Genesis. I read now verses 10 to 14. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Fishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, we're told of the four rivers that were part of the Garden of Eden. The only river that is familiar to us today is the Euphrates River, which runs through modern-day Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. Some have speculated that the Gihon could be another name for the river Nile, but after the great flood, many of these rivers may have changed geographically, so we can't be absolutely sure. Most likely, this Garden of Eden was in the area of the Fertile Crescent, often called the Cradle of Civilization. But the emphasis of mentioning these four rivers is to picture the vibrancy of this land. Each of these rivers pass through beautiful lands full of minerals and gems. Notice that the gold, delium, and onyx were mentioned not for Adam and Eve to collect for the accumulation of their wealth, but simply to indicate the richness, the beauty, and the abundance of the land. The beauty and the abundance of the garden was so that mankind could enjoy the blessings of God. And that's the main theme and focus and emphasis of describing the Garden of Eden as such. Everything that man needed was there. All man had to do was to thank God and worship Him for His many blessings. What a wonderful arrangement. I read now verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. 
As part of God's blessings and purpose, He gave Adam the responsibility to care for the Garden of Eden. It wasn't that God created Adam for the sole purpose of tending to this garden. God created Adam to worship Him voluntarily because of His many blessings. By giving Adam this responsibility, He was giving Adam a purpose which was to glorify and worship God by serving Him and doing what was His responsibility. You see, my friends, it was only after the fall that work became a so-called curse because of how hard work would be with our corruptible bodies. But work before the fall was a blessing. It was enjoyed, something for us to do and be responsible for to the glory of God. In fact, the Bible tells us in the future, we will be working for the Lord for all eternity, doing what God has asked us to do. In fact, the responsibility assigned to us in the future is based on how faithful we are to the job and task assigned to us in the present. And the more responsibility given to us in the future, the more blessings and joy we will experience. Jesus' parable of the talents teaches this biblical principle. And that's why heaven in the future won't be boring. The notion that all we do forever in eternity is to sit in an eternal worship service like we have here doesn't really inspire much excitement. But in reality, we will work in the future, as the Bible tells us, and that work will be fun, exciting, fulfilling, never tiring, life-giving, and all done for God's glory. This was God's original setup for mankind, and we see it here when He gives Adam responsibilities in Eden by which to serve and glorify Him. My friends, when we serve with motivation, and fulfill our God-given responsibilities in worship. It is also part of God's blessings to make sure we have lives of purpose and satisfaction. You and I who are in the working world know this to be true. Going to a job that you truly enjoy and find fulfilling and are willing to jump out of bed for is a real blessing. But any work that you have to do with dread, regardless of the money, isn't satisfying nor fulfilling and eventually becomes a burden. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now as part of God's blessings, He gives a prohibition for Adam and Eve. They could eat from any of the many trees in the Garden of Eden, but they were not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we'll talk more about this tree in detail when we get to chapter 3. Like, why in the world would God even put this tree in the garden? But suffice it to say, this prohibition was a warning for the good of Adam and Eve because the consequences of eating this tree was death, as verse 17 so clearly states. Let me stress again this point. This prohibition from God was for the good of Adam and Eve. You know, we tend to equate prohibitions, restrictions, and some things that we can't do as being somehow detrimental to us. But this is simply not true. A loving and caring God prohibited Adam and Eve from eating from this tree for their own good and for their safety. Just like the warnings to us about not ingesting poison or not to touch a hot stove or to smoke cigarettes, which can cause a whole host of diseases, this prohibition was not to take out all of the joy from Adam and Eve enjoying the Garden of Eden. It was so that they would enjoy the garden to the fullest extent for their protection. 
After so many verses describing how God blessed Adam and Eve with an amazing garden to live in, beautiful rivers running through lands full of precious minerals and gemstones, a buffet of the best foods, a fulfilling work, and now a prohibition for their benefit. What do you think God wanted Adam and Eve to focus on? It is evident from this chapter that the focus is on all of the blessings that they had. And the focus is not to be on the one thing they could not have, which in fact was really a blessing of a warning. But as is human sinful nature, when some people read this chapter, their minds immediately goes to what Adam and Eve could not enjoy and have. And they would say, see, God isn't good. In many ways, it is the same in our lives today. In spite of all of the blessings that God has richly blessed us with, our focus is often still on what we do not have and what we cannot have. But our attitudes need to change. You see, everything in this chapter is how God greatly blessed man. The things in this garden were for Adam's enjoyment. The responsibility of a fulfilled work was for Adam's satisfaction. The prohibition was for Adam's good. And as we're going to see later on, the creation of Eve was for Adam's companionship. God's abundant blessings are overflowing in many different ways, and we need to learn this lesson and look through the lenses of God's blessings. And this is our biblical principle number two. Biblical principle number two. A loving God's purpose and prohibitions for us are for our good, just like His many other blessings. A loving God's purpose and prohibitions for us are for our good, just like His many other blessings. My friends, it's important that we look through the lenses of seeing everything as God's blessings in our lives, even the trials we go through. In fact, James chapter 1, verse 2 tells us to count it all joy when we go through trials of various kinds. You see, a loving God's purpose for our lives may not make sense to us, like why one has to work in the garden, but a loving God would only allow it in our lives for our good, for His glory. It is the same with His commandments restrictions, and prohibitions. It is for our good, for our blessings, for His glory. If only we can see life through these lenses of blessings, then we would be able to see that in the center of God's will, when we are in the center of God's will amidst the storm, we do live in a figurative Eden, knowing that God's grace and blessings continue to abound. Look even now at verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. On day six of creation, God realized that man needed companionship. He said it was not good that he was alone. So the purpose of creating Eve was for companionship. Now this companion would be to Adam a helper. This doesn't mean that she was to be a servant or one who serves Adam. But the idea in the Hebrew word for helper is one who supports and complements another in the task at hand. So Eve was going to be created to come alongside of Adam so both of them can do the will of God. Notice that the Bible says that Eve was comparable to him, meaning that both are of the same value, that both are of the same essence. Eve was also made from dust and had the breath of life from God in her. She was also created in the image of God. My friends, the Bible never teaches that women are of any less value than men. It is so clearly stated here that women are comparable to men in value. Look now at verses 19 to 20. 
Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Many have said that it is impossible for Eve to be created on day six because Adam had to name all the animals, and there simply was no time to do so. Is it possible? Let's look at the text. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 is clear that God created Adam and Eve on day six. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And here in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2, it is clear that Adam didn't name all the animals of the world, only the beasts of the field like cattle, but not all the beasts of the earth, as chapter 1 verse 25 notes that God had created. There was also no mention of sea animals that Adam named at this time, nor the creeping things like insects. Adam only named the animals which were brought to him by God, as verse 19 tells us. So there was evidently time to create Eve on day six. Now, why did this happen before the creation of Eve? It seems rather odd that Adam would be tasked with naming animals while his God-identified need was to find a companion. I believe this task served to illustrate two purposes. First, it shows that while we are looking for companionship, whether it be a spouse or a close friend, that we continue to be faithful to do the task that God has assigned to us. Many have asked me how they can meet or find a Christian life partner. One of my advice is for them to faithfully serve the Lord and allow God to work the rest out. You see, our focus is to serve the Lord faithfully and to leave our needs to be met by our faithful God. The second purpose is to show Adam that Eve, whom God would create, would be truly special. None of the other animal creations that God had made would be as special as woman, and none could be that special helper who would serve as Adam's companion. Perhaps God brought the animals to Adam two by two, a male and a female, and it created in Adam a realization of the need for a companion. God would create Eve for Adam, and she was to be so special that no one, no animal, was like her, highlighting the difference between animals and humans. This is God's intention, that the companion in our marriage relationship and in our marriage walk is to be one who is so special that there is no one else, nothing else that can fulfill our needs. By the way, can I just say something? A married woman doesn't have to have her own biological children for her to be complete as a woman. The Bible says in marriage, a woman's role is to complement her husband, not to bear him children. May this truth be an encouragement to the married women out there who are unable to have their own biological children and perhaps feel that they are lacking something. You are not lacking anything. Look with me at verses 21 to 23. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Here we have the first surgery performed 
under general anesthesia. Now, why didn't God make Eve from the dust of the ground like Adam? Why did He create woman from one rib of man? I believe it was to show the closeness and the oneness that should be in a marriage relationship because Eve literally came from Adam. Someone said, God took Eve from Adam's side to be His companion, not from a bone from His head so that she would dominate Him, or from a bone on His foot so that Adam would tread on her, but from His rib, which is closest to His heart, so that He would love her. Verse 22 says that God brought Eve to Adam as a gift, but this time, unlike animals, there was a companionship match. And Adam called Eve woman, and in the Hebrew, it is isha, to man's ish. The similarity of names indicates their physical closeness, their need and desire for oneness. By the way, I've heard it said that because of this divine surgery, that man has one less rib than woman. That's simply not the case anatomically. Only Adam had one less rib. The rest of the men after him all had their full complement of ribs. Some have asked me if Adam had a scar from his divine operation. I really don't know. In verse 21, God's divine suture would have been perfect and leave no scar. But then again, if there was, it would be a great reminder to Adam of how much he needed to love his wife. Let me also note that God could have taken four of Adam's ribs and made for Adam four wives or even eight ribs for eight wives. But how many ribs did God take? Only one. It was God's intention in the oneness, companionship of marriage that there be only one man and one woman in that marriage relationship. Now look at verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Verse 24 gives the practical implications of this oneness in marriage between husband and wife. The man was to leave his parents and cleave to his wife through a physical and emotional consummation of the marriage in order to start a new family unit. So that means for a newly married couple, it is best and wise that they establish independence and clearly defined boundaries from both sets of parents in the areas of emotions, finances, housing, time, expectations, and in many other different ways. Married couples really should be financially independent from their parents because I see too many parents controlling their children and children-in-law through money, especially in our culture. You see, unless there is the leaving part, there is no cleaving because unless you're willing to let go of something, you aren't able to grab onto something else which should be your spouse. My friends, the cause of many issues in families is because this biblical principle is not adhered to, and therefore you have in-law issues and relationship issues that boils over into the separation of marriage. Now, please listen carefully. I'm not saying that we abandon the relationships we have with our families, nor ignore or abdicate the responsibilities we have to our parents as we are to honor them. But the Bible clearly teaches that the primary relationship between a married couple is between husband and wife and not between parent and child. I'm well aware of our Asian culture and context, but because we don't follow this biblical principle, it causes tension in marriage relationships. Christian parents, if you have children getting married or are married, please follow this biblical principle 
to give your married children the freedom, the space, and the independence they need to establish a healthy, Christ-centered marriage. If at all possible, as much as you want to live with them or they to live with you under the same household or roof, it would be wise for them to have their own place. And if that isn't practically feasible or financially possible, a separate space in the house with clearly defined boundaries. You know, for the first three years of my marriage to Cindy, we lived in our parents' home because of financial and practical reasons, such as that I was traveling so much. But we were well aware of this biblical principle, and so were my parents. So even though we were under the same roof, we had an arrangement where we paid them rent for the two rooms we used. There were rules like they could only knock on our doors at certain times. They could not come to our rooms at any time. They could not go to the area of our rooms in the evenings. Now, you may say this sounds very Western, but you know who initiated these rules? My very Asian parents who were wise enough to understand the truth of this biblical principle. Clear boundaries were set so that there would be a leaving of family and a cleaving to the spouse even within the same household. A married son should not have to choose between mother and wife. The son should most always side with the concerns of his wife because verse 24 says they are one flesh. A married husband should not have to choose between his wife or his daughter. The husband should always choose to consider the needs of his wife over any of their children. A father or mother should not tell his or her married son or daughter to choose between them or their spouse. Their married children should always prioritize the needs of his or her spouse. You see, there is no better picture of intimate oneness in the eyes of God than between a married man and a married woman. The marriage relationship is to be the priority relationship amongst all relationship for a husband and wife. Now, I'm well aware of some exceptional cases, like in the case of adultery or abuse, but that's a different message for a different time. The foundational truth is this. Second to our relationship with God, if we are married, our primary relationship is with our spouse. Now, look at verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. The nakedness of Adam and Eve with no shame was because there was nothing to be ashamed of. Sin had not tarnished their lives, and they were enjoying each other as God intended it to be. They hid nothing from each other. There was complete trust and transparency, which can only happen when there is oneness in a marriage relationship. My friends, sex is a gift from God for a married man and a married woman to enjoy. There is nothing dirty or wrong with it when that sexual intimacy is expressed in the beauty of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. That's how God intended it to be. In fact, there's an entire book in the Bible dedicated to this subject, the Song of Solomon, which we did a series on. As our creator, the author of love, and the designer of sexual intimacy, it is God's design that should be followed, and if so, there is no shame. Now, let's put it all together, biblical principle number three. God's design for marriage is exclusive intimacy between one man and one woman in oneness. God's design for marriage is exclusive intimacy between one man and one woman in oneness. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul uses the marriage relationship to illustrate the relationship between Christ and the church 
for the believers that make up the body of Christ are to be in an exclusive, intimate, oneness relationship with Jesus Christ, who loved them unconditionally and sacrificially. It is this type of exclusive, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ in oneness where we can experience the type of relationship as described for those in the Garden of Eden. In chapter 2 of Genesis, we are given a glimpse into a place called Eden. And the three biblical principles which we have identified from this chapter are as follows. Number one, humility should be a primary character trait, knowing that God holds our life in His hands. Number two, a loving God's purpose and prohibitions for us are for our good, just like His many other blessings. Number three, God's design for marriage is exclusive intimacy between one man and one woman in oneness. These three biblical principles which we have identified really may not seem to connect, but they do. And let me show you how. We wish we could live in Eden today and even look for it today. Our hope is that we who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior will live in the perfect Edenic condition when God establishes the new heavens and the new earth in the future, as Revelations chapter 21 to 22 speak about. But we do look for it today, and today we can figuratively live as if we are in Eden, meaning as God intended for us mankind to live. And we do so when we cultivate an attitude of humility in awe of the Almighty God who holds our life in His hands, and therefore we are to live our lives for Him. We live as God intended for us to live when we remember that God's blessings are all around us, even blessings in His purposes for us which we may not understand or blessings in His prohibitions which we may not like. We live as God intended for us to live when we make our relationship with Jesus as our primary relationship in oneness, keeping that relationship intimate in transparency and trust and exclusive from the world. Until that day we live in Eden in glory, let us live our lives as God intended so that we can have a taste of Eden today. May God bless each and every one of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for giving us a glimpse of what Eden looked like because we look forward to the day when we will live in that Edenic condition of the new heavens and new earth and we can fellowship with you, and we can enjoy all of your blessings. But as we live in the world today, we can also enjoy an identic-like life when we live our lives as you so intend for us. Give us attitudes that are humble. Help us to recognize your many blessings, even through our trials, and help us to ensure that our relationship with you is first and primary in our lives. May you challenge us and give us hope and assurance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.